0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 54. When I wrapped up last week, God had just charged Gideon with taking on the Midianites. I left off after the angel of God had received Gideon's offering, then departed, with Gideon only then realizing that he had been face-to-face with the Almighty. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. And that's where I'm going to pick up this week. And with that, let's get started. From the way he acted, it was apparent Gideon knew the Pentateuch well enough to know that God told Moses, You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. This is why he was afraid after realizing who he'd laid eyes on. Also, throughout this passage, the text usually reads, The angel of the Lord not simply God. Like I usually do, I'm paraphrasing for clarity. There are a couple of spots in the actual text where the phrase, Angel of Thee, is omitted. Most biblical scholars interpret the angel of the Lord as God himself. Most, not all, but a vast majority. In other cases, like in Exodus 23 and 33, we're told that God has sent an angel, but it was not God himself. The takeaway from this passage is that Gideon did look upon God and lived. I took a deeper dive into this very early in this chapter of the podcast, in episode 2, which was in volume 1 and released a year ago. Back in Judges 6, that very night, God came to Gideon, telling him to take your father's bull, the second bull, the one that's seven years old, and use the bull to pull down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father, and cut down the sacred pole that is beside it. A footnote in the New Revised Standard Version tells us that the sacred pole is sometimes called the Asherah. Also, while we've already been able to deduce that Gideon was well-versed in the Pentateuch, we now know that this was despite his father, and potentially the rest of his family, worshipping various Canaanite deities. God tells Gideon to build an altar on top of the stronghold. This stronghold was likely where Gideon was storing the grain he had been beating out in the beginning of the story. For clarity, the beating out of wheat is akin to threshing it. After telling Gideon to build the altar, God then tells him to take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering, using the wood from the sacred pole for the fire. Gideon did as he was told, with the help of ten of his servants. Then an added detail. He was too afraid of his family and the townspeople to do it by day. So, he did all of this at night, presumably that night. When the townspeople woke early in the next morning, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the sacred pole beside it was merely a stump. The second bull had been offered on the altar, an altar that was probably still standing that morning. The people stood around asking, Who has done this? After searching and probing, they found their answer, Gideon. Then they went looking for his dad. When they find Joash, they said, Bring out your son so that he may die, for he has pulled down the altar of Baal and cut down the sacred pole beside it. Joash replied, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you defend his cause? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been pulled down. Because of this episode, Gideon was sometimes called Jeroboam, which translates to, let Baal contend against him. After this, all of the Midianites and Amalekites, along with the still unidentified people of the east, came together, crossed the Jordan, and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. It was then that the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. He sounded the trumpet, and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. Gideon would send messengers throughout all of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. When the men of the tribes got the message, they all followed Gideon to the battlefield. But before the battle, were taken down a side street. Gideon tells God, In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, I am going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said. When Gideon checked on the fleece, it was exactly as he had asked for in a positive sign. So much dew that he was able to wring enough water from the fleece to fill a bowl. What can't be forgotten is that this was essentially the desert, and water, let alone dew, was hard to come by. Much like Moses, Gideon needed further reassurance. He spoke to God again, this time asking him to perform the wonder in reverse. Sure enough, the next morning, this too had come to pass. And that's how chapter 6 ends. With the convincing done, and in Judges 7, the next morning Gideon, along with all the troops, arose early and trekked to the spring of Herod, where they camped. From there, Midian was to the north, and they were situated below the hill of Mora, in the valley. Then an unexpected twist of the plot. God spoke to Gideon, telling him his army was too large. God explained that if they defeated the Midianites with such a large force, they would be inclined to think that they had done it themselves, without any divine assistance. So, he gives Gideon the next step in the plan, telling him to address the troops. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Using this plan, Gideon sorted them out with 22,000 heading home, leaving 10,000 to fight. God spoke up again, as it was still too many. Gideon then brought the men down to a pool of water for hydration. Then God told Gideon how to divide up the troops. All of those who lap the water with their tongues, as a dog laps, you shall put to one side. And all of those who kneel down to drink, cupping their hands and putting them to their mouths, you shall put them to the other side. When the sorting was done, there were three hundred that had lapped like a dog. Then God told Gideon, With these three hundred, the ones that have lapped, I will deliver you, and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go to their homes. Gideon then took their jars and their trumpets, sending everyone else home. God had Gideon get up in the middle of the night and head down to within earshot of the encamped Midianites accompanied by only one of his servants. He found that the enemy was as numerous as the sand on the seashore. While he was spying, he heard two Midianite soldiers telling each other that they thought they were going to lose to the Israelites, and specifically to Gideon. He returned to the camp and readied the troops for battle, handing them their trumpets and jars. In the jars he had the men place torches, he divided the 300 into three companies, then instructed them that when they were just outside the Midianites' camp, they are to listen for his trumpet. When he blew it, they were to blow their own instruments and give a great shout, specifically yelling, For the Lord! And for Gideon! The 300, plus Gideon, snuck down to the outskirts of the camp at a time we're told was right after the Midianites had just started their middle watch likely around midnight. The text seems to indicate the Israelites surrounded the enemy. Gideon blew his trumpet, then the men blew theirs. They also all smashed their jars and held the torches. It surely amazed the Israelites as much as frightening the enemy. They thought they were surrounded by a great force and panicked. The Benianites, along with their allies, beat a hasty retreat as far north as Beth Shittah and the border of Abel-Meholah. As all of this was unfolding, the Israelite men of Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, essentially the ones that had been sent home earlier, assembled and chased the enemy. The next paragraph covers all of the enemy that were killed and several items captured as booty. The takeaway is that it was a resounding victory. And that's chapter 7. Judges chapter 8 begins with Gideon explaining to the Ephraimites why he didn't call on them to aid in the actual battle. His response is chock-full of cultural context, perhaps as dense as any part of the Old Testament narrative I've covered so far. I normally wouldn't go this deep into the context in a summary episode, but leaving it out would decrease understanding. The Ephraimites said to Gideon, What have you done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against the Midianites? Scolding him violently. Gideon responded, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of a Bezer? God has given into your hands the captains of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? When he said this, they calmed down. After this, Gideon led his three hundred troops east, across the Jordan, where they likely collapsed tired and hungry. They were near the city of Sukkoth, close enough that Gideon asked the leaders of the city for bread, explaining that they were in pursuit of the kings of Midian, in this case two kings, specifically Ziba and Zalmunna. But the leaders of the city told him they would not give him anything until after his forces defeated the kings. They were likely afraid of aiding a small force, figuring it would fall to the mightier Midianites. Then they would have to deal with that kingdom's wrath. Gideon wasn't happy, telling the townsfolk that when he returns victorious, he will trample their flesh on the thorns of the wilderness and on the briars. He led his ragtag, water-lapping fighters to the next town, Pineul, where he received a similar welcome In this case telling them that when he returns he will tear down their tower. Then were given more insight into the enemy the three hundred one men were on their way to fight. The two generals were in Karkor, numbering in the neighborhood of fifteen thousand, fifty to one. This force was described as all of the remaining forces of that army, an army of the still yet unnamed people of the East. Gideon led his troops towards the enemy, a route that's described as being up the caravan route Issa-Noba in Jagbaha, meaning uphill along a well-worn trading route. When he got to where the army of the east was encamped, they were taken by surprise. The two previously named leaders fled, only to be quickly captured, then a confusing part of the text. Here, These same two leaders were named as kings of Midian. Also in the text, when the Midianite leaders fled, their armies were thrown into a panic. The text doesn't say what happened after this, and instead goes straight to what happened post-battle. The presumption is that Gideon's troops either slaughtered the enemy, or they fled to their homelands, or something in between. Either way, Gideon and the 300 emerged victorious. After the battle, Gideon returned from the fight, taking a route that's described as the ascent of Heres somewhere near Succoth. While on the road, he captured a young man from that town. Gideon asked the young man for the names of the city's leaders. It was payback time for when they denied he and his men food. The young man listed out the officials and elders of the city, 77 people in total. Now that Gideon has the 77 names, he heads to Succoth with the two Midianite leaders in tow. He finally gets there and quotes what those same elders had told him before the battle. are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Do you already have in possession the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna that we should give bread to your troops who are exhausted? Next, Gideon took the elders of the city and thorns from the wilderness and briars, and with these he trampled the people of Succoth. What does this mean? I don't know. I mostly doubt he killed them, and the footnote in the New Revised Standard says he could have merely taught them. What is clear is that these leaders didn't escape unscathed. Neither did the people of Penuel. Just as promised, he broke down their tower and in their case, the text specifically says he killed the men of that city. The history of the battles with the Midianite leaders isn't quite done, as the two named are still alive. Gideon turns to them and says, What about the men whom you killed at Tabor? The two kings tell him, As you are, so are they, every one of them. They resembled the sons of a king. Gideon retorted, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Gideon calls his own oldest son, Jether, telling him to dispatch the two, probably wanting to add a final bit of indignity to the kings, to be killed by a boy, a lad so young he was not even referred to as a young man. Jether, though, and owing to being so young, did not draw his sword, as he was afraid. The two kings then addressed Gideon specifically. You, come and kill us. Gideon quickly took them up on their offer. He then took the crescents that were on the necks of their camels as his personal plunder. Having recently seen what he did, the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also for you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian. Gideon knew better, telling them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He then has an ask, Let me make a request of you. Each of you give me an earring that you have taken as booty. Then we're parenthetically told that their enemies, at least those they had recently defeated, had golden earrings because... They were Ishmaelites. The people willingly gave Gideon the jewelry he asked for, spreading a garment on the ground, with each throwing on it an earring they had taken, so much that it weighed 1,700 shekels. Gideon also seized the crescents, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. With all of this, Gideon made an ephod, meaning a sleeveless garment probably similar to that worn by the Levite priest. He would display his ephod in his hometown, Ophrah. All Israel prostituted themselves to it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. The land had forty years' rest. Gideon would continue to live in his own house, becoming the father to some seventy sons through his many wives. One of these sons was Abimelech, through Gideon's concubine from Shechem. Why we're given this specific detail becomes apparent in the next chapter. But first, Gideon lives a long life, long enough that his death is said to have occurred when he was at a good old age. He was buried in his father's tomb, in his hometown. His story isn't quite through, though. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites relapsed again and again worshipped the Canaanite Baals, specifically making the version known as baal Berith their god. They forgot their own god, the one who had delivered them from the brink, from their enemies, so many times. The chapter ends telling us that they didn't even remain loyal to the house of Gideon. And that's Judges chapter 8. But the story of Gideon continues into the next chapter. That's going to have to wait until next week. Join me then when I'll pick up towards the end of Gideon's story. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.